be careful of your cars, be careful indoor spaces, be careful of lo local law about the number of people you can bring together into a space. Um, and be hyper vigilant. You know, it's, it's people fall back on, oh, I checked everyone's temperature and I was asymptomatic. Well, it turns out a lot of this disease is spread asymptomatically and a lot of it spread, you know, same thing, but before you have symptoms. So you might eventually get symptoms, you're spreading it before you have symptoms. Okay, RP, it is Tuesday. Um, today is the 14th of July. Um, haven't spoken to you in a little bit. Um, COVID, COVID, and more COVID. There's just a lot of COVID talk going on right now. My general feeling is that, um, you know, the, the headlines are pretty heavy, and you're seeing some reversals in places like California. Um, but I also feel a sense of sort of just true exasperation where people sort of are throwing their hands up, throwing their hands up, and this is, again, my impression, in the sense that they don't really expect the feds to do anything. I guess on a state level, things may happen. Um, I dropped one of my sons off at camp last week after he was, you know, tested negative for the disease. And, you know, I'm trying to keep my own head. You, you've given advice that is about being your own leader and, and practicing being COVID smart. Um, I think my own behavior is primarily COVID smart, um, but I'm also about to take a team on the road to travel down the Mississippi to do a variety of conversations to clarify they are all outside. They will all have masks. They will all have safe practices and they'll be small. You're talking like 15 people uh, on 11 different nights. So I got a lot on my mind and it's not easy. Um, but if you could react to two things, one, I'd like to talk today a little bit about our trip. And two, what the hell? Like the big world is talking a lot about COVID again and things seem out of control in a way, or it's certainly the media tells it that way. There's uh, first of all, it's great to see you, Tom, and it has been. Great to see you too, by the way. There's, uh, there's, a, there's this weird irony, I think is true about this disease, which is if it was a little more deadly, it would have killed less people. And because it kills less than 1% of the entire group of people who are infected, and because that crowd tends to be older, not entirely, and thereby kind of a hidden death, um, we had this in America and a couple other nations, not many, this lagging, lagging, lagging sense of taking it at all seriously. And that moment of lagging of taking it seriously led to that, that leadership vacuum led to a lot of room for us to start fighting amongst ourselves about non-factual aspects, bullshit, basically. Sorry, mom. And um, my mom told me not to curse as much. So um, that's the reality in which we find ourselves. And there's absolutely nothing puzzling about why America now has 37 states with rapidly growing disease why a number of states and cities unfortunately cannot open schools, which is such a critical aspect to life, education, economy, safety, nutrition, uh, why that isn't working, um, and why um, we're, we're still behind in just about every metric. And it's just, we just didn't take it seriously. We didn't listen to the experts. So here we are. Now, if we had this exact same epidemiological reality uh, June 1st or July 1st, even, we could still have dealt with it by locking, just doing a hard lockdown, compulsory mask wearing, 
and then we could get to school on time. We could get ready for flu season on time and get ready for the electoral season on time. But we didn't do those things. So now it's even more complicated. We've talked a lot about how, you know, even a really extraordinarily virulent and deadly disease um, can be contained if you deal with it quickly and not right off the bat, like MERS was dealt with quickly. Horrible disease, worse than this, was dealt with very, very quickly and was contained. This wasn't in the United States. So look, it is where we, it, we are where we are, right? So now we have to really, not only just be our own leader, but we have to really figure a lot of stuff out for ourselves. Um, and the good news is clearly more and more people are, are getting religion on this or taking it seriously. The president wore a mask the other day at Walter Reed Hospital, thank God. Uh, that's the U.S. Army Hospital, full of U.S. Army vets and wounded people from our military engagements. And if he were to have walked in there without a mask and gotten someone infected, maybe that was, maybe that was finally the border he couldn't have crossed. But, I mean, look, I could go on and on, Tom, and there's a lot more to talk about, but we're um, entering school season, running the silly season of politics, running flu season. Things are going to get more complicated. And so all of us, you on your trip, you know, uh, we just finished our trip. And now we have more summer ahead. We have to take this very seriously. And it's, it's hard. Like, that's a cost um, to not go hug your friend, to not go sit at a bar with somebody, to, you know, all these things. Um, that's a cost that we're incurring. And, it, and, and I just remind my family, look, it's once in a century that we're going to have to do this right now. At least we hope. We'll see. I do that with a wink or my fingers crossed. Um, and and let's, let's incur the cost. Let's defeat the disease. Let's wear our masks. And um, let's see where we are. The reality is we're not, we're going to have a whole lot more people dead, probably double the number before this is over, certainly. Um, we're going to have a lot more consternation in America and a lot more debate and fighting because of the election. Um, but let's just hope that we're beginning to accept there is a disease, which a lot of people didn't believe. It really will hurt a lot of people we love, which a lot of people didn't believe. And that, that can translate over to taking protective steps for ourselves and for others, which a lot of people fought against. And I'm hoping by virtue of the president wearing his mask um, that that rhetoric, that stupidity is going down and we're going to at least start wearing masks to social distance and get going. But it's not going to be pretty. When you talk about the numbers, so the last time we talked, we were looking at, I think if I'm right, you were saying between 250 and 300,000 people by October 1st. Does that has that number changed? It's gotten higher. Um, I'm very sad to say, and you know, I have an extraordinarily talented, passionate epidemiological modeling team at Ergo that works on this. Um, and again, congratulations to them. They've been on top of this. We have the best curve in the world uh, for America, and that's ridiculous. We've actually done 14 nations. We've been right in all 14 nations, and it's ridiculous because um, we shouldn't. CDC should, large universities should. You know, some universities really embarrass themselves on this early on, uh, getting the curves wrong, and 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 just we got this right, and that's also bad because ours has always been more pessimistic than almost anyone's except for Oxford's. Uh, so now ours is more pessimistic, not by a ton, but a little bit. Now remember, every curve you see, every projection you see, that's more than three, let's say three or four weeks out can change 100%. It's purely a conjuring. It's a word I'm trying to get everyone to use when they talk about curves. It's a conjuring, you know, uh, 
a witch by a bowl brewing up, you know, in a Disney movie, like, you know, uh, a spell. It's a conjuring of what future could be, uh, what could present itself. And that conjuring, that future will change if we change. So right now ours is more negative. We have a if there's no change line, which is horrible. And we have a if there's some change line. And by change, I mean social distance, wear masks, and more lockdowns. So it just depends on how seriously people want to take it. But literally, if every person in America said, I'm going to wear a mask tomorrow, I'm going to socially distance tomorrow, and I'm going to hand wash tomorrow. Now, which a lot of people can't because of work. But if everyone could do that and they had a decent mask, the disease would, this is a perfect, you know, this is, this is laboratory perfect only. The disease would be out of the endemic population in 14 days and only the, the sick would be the ones who are carrying the disease and ideally they get treated and it would be gone. Now, that could never happen in any country, but, you know, the curves can change. So let's, let's, if we can, we've done this before, but I want to speak specifically, and this is very germane and topical for me, for us. Um, I'm going to, so my life right now, so I, I, as I said, I, I took my son to camp. He, he had to do a, pos, a negative test with COVID, which he did, and then he had to quarantine, which he did, and then I drove him to camp. And then when he got there, there's sort of protocols for the way you drop him off. I did speak to the head of the camp, and he did say that it's very controversial what he's doing. Um, and we left, you know, and, and so I dropped him off there. And, and then I came back home. Now, I, I mentioned all of that because, one, I, it, you know, my general feeling is if my children are going to go to school in the fall, there's no more risk in me sending them to camp now. You know, it's just what's the difference? One of the important differences at the camp is no one comes in and out. No one goes home at the end of the day. They come once, they leave once. It's all one session. He's not allowing people to come and go. So that in a way, it's a really protected environment um, relative to school. I'll put it to you that way. And then I came home and I stayed in a hotel that night. And by the way, they check your zip code at the hotel. Where are you from? And, huh. if, and if in Vermont, if you cross a certain threshold, you can't stay in a hotel in Vermont. So... Um, now, and when I go into the hotel, and I'm mentioning the hotel because I'm trying to share when I interact with people. I don't go anywhere where there's people inside or outside on a, in, you know, in relatively close quarters. I don't go anywhere inside without a mask on except my own house. Um, stayed at the hotel. You go into the hotel, and basically there's plastic in front of all the counters. There's almost nobody in the, in the lobby, and the lobbies don't have food anymore or any of that kind of stuff. So you go in, you go out, and then I get back on my vehicle. And I come home. Those were the practices I had this weekend. Those are similar practices that we're going to have on this trip. And we can go into greater detail. But just sort of starting there, if you could just react to my trip and my kids camp, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, I want to tell you about ours as well. It's very similar for the hotels we stayed in on the way home. <coughs> um, you know, everything you've described is, to my eyes, safe. There's, there's, there's only one piece of sort of, I don't know, the science continues to learn about this disease fast, right? Um, it's a brand new thing. It's a six-month-old bug. One thing that we're learning relatively new is about this concept of stale air, right? So most of the spread that we can pinpoint, we've talked a lot about the study of the choir in the church, right? So I use that just as an example. If you have a high-density people in a confined area with poor air movement, and a lot of spittle moving, you're in a you're just in a like transmission super zone, right? This disease appears 
And so many of these things need huge asterisks. This disease appears to be really a super spreader disease um, that you can have 20 people who have the disease who don't spread it at all. And you can have one person who spreads it to 40 people, right? Um, that would be, you know, an R naught of two. I think I did my math right, right? Um, so yes, that's right. So, um, and it turns out most of those events are in bars, uh, in confined areas, a lot of spread right now amongst young people in bars. So you're in a bar, you have to speak more loudly because there's high density people. The air is relatively stale. Alcohol, you know, is lessening all sorts of inhibitions and um, you're spreading the disease. So lots of spreading from young people in bars. Column in the New York Times today said, we drank away this generation's future. Um, obviously it's, it's sensationalist, but the concept isn't wrong that all this drinking by young people in bars is really what's kicked the disease off in every state. Uh, the 37 states growing right now, more than half of them have been kicked off from that. And then the other places it's spreading are in prisons, um, uh, in migrant housing. So again, high density, low ventilation um, places. And then you add a lot of noise, a lot of volume increase, and it's worse. So, you know, it, it, it appears to be there's extraordinarily, extraordinarily low numbers of people get transmitting it outside at protests and an outdoor, you know, uh, socially distanced, have, have a beer with a buddy kind of thing. Um, uh, and then you add mass to all that and it gets very safe. So everything you've described seems like the right idea. Um, and, and your camp design sounds smart and you're right, it is technically safer than school. You're, you're presenting a false choice to yourself by saying, since I'm sending my kids to school, thereby I'll do this. Not to say camp sounds at all unsafe because it sounds perfectly safe. It sounds really well done. Not perfectly. It sounds very well done. Um, you know, Tom, I'm not sure who's going back to school. Things are changing pretty dramatically right now. A lot of yeah. school districts are, are shutting down or, 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 or changing their schedules. So I think that sounds good. Be careful of your cars. Be careful indoor spaces. Be careful of local law about number of people you can bring together into a space. Um, and be hyper vigilant. You know, it's it's people fall back on. Oh, I checked everyone's temperature and I was asymptomatic. Well, it turns out a lot of this disease is spread asymptomatically, and a lot of it spread. You know, same thing, but before you have symptoms. So you might eventually get symptoms. You're spreading it before you have symptoms. Um, this is it's a tricky disease. I do a a community meeting um, in in my town in our town every morning, and there's about twenty people there. Um, we sit outside and we wear masks unless it's your turn to speak. There are elderly people there. Um, it feels really safe to me. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I, I don't know. And, and I feel the rest of us have a, certainly a, a, a high degree of confidence that I think that we're doing the right things. I say I think because I ask people and they, they tell me the same thing. So just that unit of thing, and you just said it, but I just want to confirm it that to sit outside in a chair at least six feet away with a mask on and have a conversation with a group of people, sorry, and to have a conversation with a group of people is something that you feel good about. Yes. So does CDC, so does WHO. Yes, I do. Okay. Um, and then, and then it's not perfect, hotel transition is, is a thing. No is problem. It's a thing. Yeah. And then the last one is car. You know, car... We're traveling in pods, which is to say yeah, you yeah, travel. Yeah, so we talked about before. So your car, car is a, you know, if anyone in that car is infected, presume everyone in that car is infected. Right. So, but right. if you start off clean, 
you maintain clean behaviors, then that car nominally is clean as well. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've already been out there. I've already done the trip. And so, you know, it's just such an interesting thing. I keep saying this. COVID is a real thing. The most challenging part of COVID, beyond those who are at risk and get sick, seems to be the emotional, psychological relationship people have with the disease and the decisions they make and the way it impacts their lives and the lives of the people I like around the, them. I like the, the emotional relationship we have with the disease, yeah. And it's hard. You know, it's very hard. People react in very strong ways. You know, you see a lot of people getting really upset about those who don't wear masks. Okay, that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, I certainly think everyone should wear masks in the, in the, in the proper places. But then there's these other decisions like um, my friend's camp, my, where my sons go, that people get very emotional about. And I'm not sure about that. Like, I, I don't, I, I'm finding it very difficult to keep my children home all day, you know? And, and there's a trade-off question for me, which is you see them kind of wither when they're inside all the time, you know? And they're only this age once and developmentally, where's the greater risk? I, you know, some people might read that as, well, that sounds simplistic, Tom. Of course you want them to stay away from the disease. To what point? I, I don't know. I don't think it's that simple. You, um, you know, the first thing to note, right, is that you're putting a tremendous amount of thought. You have a lot of passion. And, and if I can say you have, you know, some healthy fear and responsibility in the way you're looking at this. And, um, the, you know, that's, that's a win right there, right? Like most people, not most, a lot of people don't. A lot of people just aren't thinking about it like that. Um, they're, they're still ignoring it. Now, again, I'm hoping we're getting over that curve. We're accepting it's a disease and we're, we're hoping we take it seriously. Um, you're taking it very seriously. Now, the only risk you then have, right, is a fluke event or, as we discussed with Adam Robinson, this idea of entering the stupid zone. You have a, this look at the tension you have. Look at the passion you have. Look at the fear you have. All those things lead to cognitive overload and, and, dis, and mistakes. So if all of you are working together and you're all talking about this together, right? So I get my six-year-old recruited. We get, we're going into a restaurant. Everyone has their masks on. William, make sure everyone else has their mask on. William, you know, stand next to mom. Hold, put your hand in my pockets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as long as you're all working on together and you're all checking each other, as long as you get over the, um, what is it, the social and, uh, awkwardness of correcting somebody, like you should be able to tell yourself inside the group, Hey, first of all, like safe zone, if anyone criticizes or corrects anyone for unsafe behavior here, we laud that. We don't criticize that. We all need to help each other. Hey, Tom, you forgot to wear your mask. Where is it? Oh, thanks, Tom. Don't touch that surface. Oh, thanks, Tom. You're not six feet away. You all want to be doing that with each other because entering the stupid zone, you make mistakes. Our brains aren't designed for this much complexity. When you add and laden on this emotionality, which you clearly have, we're more likely to even, even though we're more tuned to it, we're still more likely to make mistakes. Now, all that said, I don't think you have to have a sense of panic about this. This disease isn't the measles. It doesn't sit in the air for hours and hours and hours. There are new studies that it does sit in the air a little bit longer, but it's still nowhere near the transmissibility factor of measles, right? Um, you know, we have a fairly good idea about how this spreads right now. We have a fairly good idea of how it is spreading. It is people in bars. It's people in prisons. It's high-density migrant labor. Um, and, you know, it's the pictures we've all been seeing. That's how it's spreading. Um, and, and I would, again, I would say, I feel like we're beginning to get our act together and say, all right, this is real, right? 
let's let's collectively deal with this. I was in Idaho, um, and I went into a store to buy huckleberries, which are a thing out there, which I had to get some huckleberries. And it was a little teeny store at the end of a little teeny road in a little teeny middle of nowhere Idaho, literally. And there was a sign on the door, which I'll send and we can put up on the screen. And it said, um, you don't need to wear a mask in here unless you're the Lone Ranger. And it had all this Trump stuff. And I walked in with my son and I with the mask on and she gave me like nasty dagger eyes. And we tried to talk through it. And I said, you know, I'm from Connecticut and I don't want to bring the disease to you and this and that. And, oh, I don't want any of that. Blah, blah, blah. Right. We were in a restaurant yesterday in Pennsylvania. Same trip. There's a sign at the door. Thank you for wearing masks to protect our staff. Everybody had a mask on. Now, we do know there's regional differences in this disease. I think it's also a difference of a couple of weeks. We're getting there. Yeah. You know, I go to Starbucks every day. There you go. It's your Starbucks. Um, Our coffee maker broke. And I think a lot about that because, as I said in our team meeting today, that's not an essential worker as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think they should be open. I think they should do what they think is wise and, and, you know, and the right thing for their people and the people who come to the store. Is, is there a number that, that you're familiar with that is sort of the retail worker's number? in terms of higher rates of infection, et cetera, because I think it's a really good, interesting case study. You know, you don't go into Starbucks with no mask on and they all have on masks and they seem to work there every day. What, what's the word on that? First of all, I think if you walk into an eating establishment or an establishment and you don't have a mask on and they do, A, you should go out and get one. And if not, B, you should apologize, right? You're putting them at risk. They're going through the uncomfortable effort to protect you and themselves and your food you should wear a mask when you're in there with them as well. Uh, so I think that's a general rule of thumb that I hope everyone can follow. <laughs> Just the basic manners, right? Um, as to your question, yes, there's a sad, there's a sad set of statistics about essential workers. Uh, and they're not essential workers by any measure. In this instance, it's labor. They're capitalist low-income labor that are um, at work because they have to be at work. They can't afford not to go to work. Maybe they got a thousand dollar check from the White House months and months ago, uh, but they need their job. And so they're they're at risk inside that closed environment. Now, a Starbucks, the Starbucks, you know, a Starbucks is generally larger, generally better ventilated. Right. There's lots of restaurants, lots of frontline workers where that's not the case. But even at the Starbucks, for example, that person's at risk. And yes, there are numerous cases of frontline workers. And again, they're not really essential workers, frontline food service workers who are getting this disease and getting sick. Sadly, most of them, many of them tended to be minorities and tended to, well, they tend to be minorities. So a lot of, a, a good amount of the initial minorities, some of the initial minority spread, initial spread came from minorities working in, in restaurants and stuff like that up front. Um, it can be done safely but it's a challenging environment. You know, one thing I noticed in this entire trip, except literally in the end of February, sitting on a chair, um, a woman, right when the disease came out, and remember how panicked we were in the beginning, right? We knew nothing. We just had, all we had to, to navigate was fear. A woman walked by me right as I'm in the middle of this fear, and I wrote my first memo on this disease, February 26th, which I'm so proud of, by the way, my team and I wrote. 
which largely predicted where we are today, which is also sad. And so again, I'm very in the disease. I'm very in my head. I'm sitting there writing and a woman walked by and sneezed right on me. I, I, I mean, it's like she didn't see me. I don't think she intended to. She looked right at me, three feet away, sneezed on me, and I felt it. I don't know what the hell that was about. Um, since then, <laughs> I haven't had, I, I, I note, I haven't seen a single person sneezing dangerously, coughing dangerously. Everyone's very, very careful about it. That's a very dangerous way to spread the disease, of course, is sneezing or coughing. So answer, yes, it's those people working at Starbucks are not immune. It's dangerous. Um, and we all need to wear masks when we go in there. Nonetheless, I'm glad to have a Starbucks coffee today. And when you go into Starbucks, though, you feel pretty safe. Yeah, I, I, I do. When I go into a restaurant, I mean, when I go in, um, I do. But when I see people, I have a good mask. Um, I, I've gotten better at using it. I have a beard, so it's not perfect. You know, in fact, it's far from perfect. But um, again, remember, the first thing I said is if this disease was more deadly, it would have killed less people. It's um, it's a very, very serious and very deadly disease. But it's just below that threshold where we freaked out hard enough to shut down like we should have. Lot, but 99% of the countries in the world did. We didn't. And now we're paying a huge cost for it economically and socially and emotionally, uh, politically. Um, yeah. So if you would, just give me your best view on, on sort of the state of Fauci. What do you expect from the Fed side? Is, are we just going to be like coasting along and leaving it up to the governors? I'm talking about the government part of this. Yeah, no, 100%, right? So the president, there's this, there's a, there's, we had described it as a 5% possibility in March, April, probably April that the president would get religion, we called it, quote unquote, and lock down a ton of states because he realized the disease was going to hurt his election chances. So that was, if that was a 5% chance, the president federally locking down a bunch of states, if that was a 5% chance in you know May, June, it's a 2% chance now, but it's still out there. I love wild cards. The word wild, the word wild card gives me a lot of freedom to say a lot of crazy ideas. So there's one. Could the president wake up and say, holy Moses, I'm going to lose this election, which, which it looks like he is right now. Um, again, lots of water to go under the bridge until voting day and a lot of water to go under the bridge until a new president sits in the office. But he could wake up and say, I had to do something dramatic. That's one thing he could do. Otherwise, no. So, yeah, it's governors and it's mayors. And, you know, the governor of our state has just done a remarkably good job about this. You know, a pretty quiet guy, doesn't do a lot of press, but he just labored behind the scenes, the good team, and, and Connecticut is doing exceptionally well. Still the uh, case? New York, still, right still, the case. still the case, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's going to come up here like it did everywhere else, but it's, it's still doing great. Um, you know, and like, what does that mean? It means when you do testing. So one measure we use, and it's one measure that they use, and it's a, it's a very flawed measure, but it's, if you think about it as disease surveillance, right? Where is the disease? Where isn't the disease? Where is it hiding? Where isn't it hiding? One thing you do is you look at the tests done in an area. So you look at Connecticut, all the testing done in Connecticut and the percentage of positive tests that of tests that come back in Connecticut right now is well under 1%. So when your son went and got a test the other day before he went to camp, that went into a registry anonymously and said there's one test and it was negative. And you know, of the, all those tests done, 
less than 1% in Connecticut are coming back positive right now, just as an example of how low the endemic spread of the disease is. In Florida, there were days when the test was coming back 20% positive, 20 times, 2,000% more people have the disease there. So yes, we're, we've knocked it down substantially here. Now, New York has um, basically an enforced quarantine if you come from some bad states. We're going to make it by the skin of our teeth, thank God, when we leave and go to New York. Um, enforced quarantine, 14-day quarantine, so that you don't spread the disease in New York. Connecticut does not. It is a strongly recommended quarantine. Um, and I suspect if things work okay in the next couple of weeks, the governor will keep it there. But I would also suspect if we start to have a spike of cases, it will clearly be from travel. There's no other way it gets here, right? Because the disease is gone. Remember, it doesn't fall from the trees. Then uh, the governor will probably have to make that quarantine more enforceable fines if you don't follow it. Uh, but right now, yeah, that's the Connecticut update. So um, the Ivy League shut the fall down sports-wise. Yeah. Um, um, it's interesting because the Ivy League shut down their sports first in the spring as well. Um, and then I wonder, you know, what, what does that say for high school? Um, and then what does it say for the broader world? It does seem to me that the places I get the most anxious right now, it's gyms. Um, I don't go in them, um, but I see a lot of people going in them. And then I, I think the interaction that you have in sports and in particularly football, it would be hard to imagine you could have a football game where if, if one person on the field has COVID, it would seem to me that at least two are walking off the field with COVID. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of science to that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't remember younger people, there's some very optimistic science or it's very positive science that gives me some reason to be optimistic. There's a couple studies now, it used to be just one that younger people are a third to a half as, as likely as older people to contract the disease. So just keep that in mind. But yeah, they've shut down a ton of sports. They've also canceled, um, you know, removed sports at Brown and at Stanford. They've, they've said no more crew at Stanford. This isn't because of the disease. It's another dynamic, but it makes me sad. No more crew, no more wrestling, a couple other things at Stanford. Um, at Brown and at the Ivy League, they've shut down football for now. And it, you know, the weight room, great place to spread. I don't know how they're going to run schools, Tom. I just don't know. Um, I know what they're doing in Notre Dame. I've had the privilege of talking with them a little bit as of you. They're, they're being pretty smart about it. They're packing everybody in really fast. No one can leave. Um, at, at Yale, I think they're only bringing like one or two of the classes into school per year, uh, or sorry, per semester. But again, you need the social distancing. You need to not have people traveling in and out in all this. So I, I just keep saying this because maybe someone smarter than me has an answer for this, but there's a way to make all this much, much easier. And I'm sorry I've said it before, but I'll say it again. If we can figure out how to protect our vulnerable populations, let's call it people over 70 or people with, with other diseases, people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. If we can protect those people, uh, isolate those people, then the percentage lethality of this disease, the infection infectious fatality rate for everyone else is very, very small. Um, and, and, and because we've done such a crappy job in America of pushing this down, right? Europe's going back to school, right? 
much of Europe, and they'll be fine because the endemic numbers are so low. Much of Asia, you know, many, many Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, these countries, they're almost back to normal. They're still wearing masks, but the disease is basically knocked out. And, um, and so they can do all these things. We can't do all these things and because we have too much disease running around. So the cost is just crippling to our economy right now. And it's because older folks generally, and, and our, I'm putting big asterisks on this, the ones who die. So we have got to figure out some way to isolate our vulnerable populations. The problem is our leaders, our president, our governors, school heads, many of them are in that age bracket. So the folks who have to make the decision to protect our vulnerable populations, meaning isolate, like go away. It doesn't mean it's walk around with a mask on. It means like go in another room and lock the door, do everything by Zoom. People have to make that decision. Also, the people would have to do it. So you can understand why they're not making the decision. But if you take that paradigm and you think about a school, you know, older professors need to be protected. Kids with comorbidities or diseases have to be protected. You know, I'm sure there are not children at your summer camp with diabetes. And if there are, there shouldn't be. Uh, sad, right? I have diabetes in my family. I have a sibling with diabetes, you know, and it would be really sad if she couldn't have gone to camp, but she shouldn't have gone to camp, right? So protecting those people with comorbidities in the older population, absolutely critical because um, they're the ones who are 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more likely to die in most instances. So we haven't spent any time talking today, and, and I don't think we have time today, but I want to talk about um, George Floyd and the you know, issues around race and how that's going to relate to the election and how they relate to some of the other complicating factors that we're talking about, COVID, et cetera. Um, it's such a strange time. It's such a strange time to think about the conventions, for example, um, the election, the, you know. By the way, one more, let me ask a question as it relates to that. Are we still feeling okay about the protests as a spread? Yeah, the, the statistics are, are quite good. Um, it's a very heated conversation, but statistically spread during protests uh, is you know, non-existent or extremely low, um, which is which is a blessing. And it makes sense, right? You're outside. Now, if you're standing right next to someone at a podium, there's a speaker up there and you're all yelling and screaming at the podium and the air is relatively still, you know, it's, that's a dangerous zone. But walking down a street, ideally not so bad. Quickly on the George Floyd thing, and, and we don't have time for it, I guess, but around, I, I do want to have a conversation at some point, Tom, because You'll recall a month ago, I was very down for the first time in my life on my nation, on my country. Like, I really was despondent about where we were headed. And I was despondent about a lot of what had been revealed to me about how horrendous the degree to which there's just horrible racism in this country, plus other things, right? And uh, I came out, you helped me come out of that. And I, I kind of came out of it more optimistically. I have to say, this last Independence Day, I bet we'll, I, how about we have at least the opportunity, I'm not sure if, but we have the opportunity to look back on this Independence Day as one of the most fantastic moments in our history, in our recent history at least. Because as painful as the change and the evolution is we're going through right now, and I mean, it's painful, right? We have to have the slow motion murder, to use Graham Allen's phrase, the slow motion murder of, jo of George Floyd in front of all of us to begin to wake up to this 400, you know, 400 years of unbelievable systemic brutality to really get the message. As much as we had to go, go through all these horrible killings, we're beginning to 
open our eyes to these things. The scales are coming off our eyes and it hurts so much, but we're ideally going to make progress, right? And in some conversations that we've had on here, we've talked about, you know, a black box on the internet's not enough and putting a flag in your lawn's not enough and what you and I are doing here is not enough. Like we have to find the real change, which is why I think your trip is so fantastic. Um, but I think we're at that moment when we might actually be looking at real systemic change. The flag in, was it Mississippi? No longer has the treasonous flag of the South on it. Like that's awesome. Like we, it's, it's only symbolic, but we are beginning to make real changes. And I'd, I'd love to think about that more or talk about that more with you. Um, so perhaps this last Independence Day just passed is one we're gonna look back on and say, wow, we really began to change finally on some critical issues that we had ignored for so, so long uh, around that Independence Day. So, so when I if I were gonna describe the most important part of this trip, it is to humbly listen and create an environment in which nuanced, loving, valuable, courageous information can be shared so that the people in the room benefit, the people not in the room, the people there benefit, and then the broader world benefits. That's the goal. And like the best thing that we can do is create the environment in which we can absorb and help other people absorb. All kinds of different people. Um, I, I appreciate what you just said because I want to feel like we can make a bit more perfect union right now. And I think that it is imperfect and painful. It is painful. And, and as a priority, I think it's just such an important priority. And I'm just one white man sharing that opinion. And I, I think I share an opinion that is pretty broadly felt. And I hope that we can reserve space for that opportunity. And COVID challenges that for sure it does it does you're absolutely right but it, it I have to tell you that day to day when I wake up in the morning and I think are you know are we going to go do this it's freaking hard like I'm trying to keep a coalition together and I get a new headline from California that says they're closing down and as you can imagine it makes people afraid it should they're human no, look, it, and, and again I I you know heavy you have a lot of stress about getting this done safely but Back to this idea of, um, you know, this is a forced social experiment, as Ryan Holiday put it. And um, and for those of us lucky enough to get to spend more time with our families, not so everybody, or to, to dig into things that we miss or to slow our lives down, there's lots of silver linings. Your ability to have these conversations is partly enabled by this. But just think about, the. I think we're about 120 days or so into this lockdown. I think that's about right. And if I look at what I have learned about not moving over to the race issues, uh, what I have learned, literally, I mean, look, I thought I was a pretty educated person. I didn't know what Juneteenth was. I didn't know about the Black Wall Street massacre. I didn't know. I wasn't taught these things, right? Um, and 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 I didn't I didn't address. I didn't understand perhaps the systemic racism to the degree I do now. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Like just me, right? Like what have I learned? How have I evolved? And, and I'd like to think I was, you know, had a, I have a long way to go, but a little less. By the way, that I think what you just said is right on, which suggests we have a ways to go, right? We have right. a ways to go, and it's through conversations like, I mean, look, Tom, it's been with conversations through you that I've 
and the people we've had on here and Neil and others and that have given me, you know, all that education and hopefully others are sharing that with us. But that's what you're bringing. That's what you're doing. Hard, uncomfortable conversations. You know, I remember when the phrase privilege was one I thought was obnoxious. Like, what, do you, what is this privilege thing? Like, what is a stupid word? Well, it's not. Like, I get it. Right. I understand what privilege means now, just as an example. So um, we now maybe have a little more time to go through those conversations. You're accelerating those. You're bringing those to people. There's huge value in that. I'm, I, you have a big kind of public health burden. You know, you're like the Surgeon General of this trip. You're the head of the CDC for this trip. That's tough for you. Um, make sure everyone has good masks. Make sure everyone's got a team spirit. Make sure you correct each other. Have safety lectures. You know, if, I don't know if you've ever shot split clay pigeons, right? You know, if you ever shot a shotgun, if you ever shot a pistol, shot a rifle, every time you do so, you need to have a conversation beforehand about safety. You guys should do the same thing on your trip. Yeah. RP, speaking of our trip, I have in, in 90 seconds, I have an organizational meeting on my trip, so I got to go. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on Thursday. I'm, I'm glad to see you, you back. <coughs> Thank you, as always, for your time. And I got a lot of letters of, guys, where are, where'd you go? So we're oh, back. Good. Well, I'm glad we're back. And uh, I'll have my coffee before the call tomorrow. So I'll be a little faster on the diction. But great to see you. Good luck with your talk. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for everything. Talk to you guys. Thanks, RP. Bye-bye.